0: Thank you for coming here tonight. So much has happened since I began to lecture here in in Dallas. Many Jewish people have come back to the Jewish faith. But the work of the evangelical community continues. As you know, there are today more missions to the Jews in the United States than when I began this lecture back in January of this year. And they have the same message. I could prove to you from the Jewish scriptures that Jesus is the promised Messiah. That's a very important statement. And today we're dealing with more than 470 missions to the Jewish people just in this country. By the way, there are other kinds of Christians that would not say that. I mentioned in some of my lectures that Catholics today are not at all interested in Jewish evangelism. By and large, if you meet a Catholic, they will probably not try to convert you. They'll be most respectful of what you believe. So it's important for you to understand that this lecture series that we've done here has nothing to do with the person who says, look, I can't prove to you that Jesus is the Messiah, I just believe it on faith, meaning without evidence, this lecture has nothing to do with you. We are dealing with the statement that I can prove to you from the Old Testament that Jesus is the promised Jewish Messiah. Someone says to you, I believe that Muhammad is the final and greatest prophet. Well, that's your business. Someone says, I believe the tree in my backyard is is God. Go ahead. I was speaking at a Protestant university in the Northeast a few weeks ago. And one of the professors said to me after the lecture, he said, Well, I know that Isaiah 7.14 is clearly referring to a contemporaneous situation where Ahaz, the king of Judah, was surrounded by two vast armies that wanted to destroy him. And it's very clear that it was the child that was then who was the sign. But we believe on faith that there is a dual prophecy. And I'm sure many of you have heard that term. It isn't in the Bible. But we believe on faith that it's also pointing to Jesus in the future. This lecture series, the work that we're doing here, has nothing to do with that statement. You want to believe that on faith? That's your business. We got a call one day. All kinds of odd things happened. We must have an overnight delivery of the tape series. Could you send it, you know, red label UPS overnight? I said, sure. And the address was the First Methodist Church in the South. (laughs) okay so send the tape series one week later to the day i get a phone call and i asked him for permission to talk about this and i get a phone call and it's david he is the pastor and he says rabbi i've always had an interest in the jewish people i always understood my christianity from where it emerged from, from the Jewish people. And I always had a love for the Jewish people. And uh, I studied, and my wife and I, we studied the tapes, and we've gone over these lectures. It's all the Bible, and I want to convert to Judaism. Well, the story doesn't end there. He said, I have a problem. What's your problem? He says, I'm a minister of this church. <laughs> <laughs> So, there's always something new and juicy that comes up. So I said to him, look, you've got to square with them. I mean, it would be a good idea if you tell them what you believe now. And, you know, and I'll work with you and we'll, we'll work together and make this work. She said, fine. And he went to his board and the president and all the big mahras were there. And he told them. And their answer is not exactly what he had expected. What do you think they told him? Get out. out. No, they didn't say get out. They said, I'm sorry, we have a contract with you until June of 1996. (laughs) He said He said I don't know if you heard me But I don't believe in this anymore I want to be a Jew And they said then teach us Judaism He emailed me on my email address, tovia at j51.com, and told me that his next sermon was on why the Trinity was wrong, and why one must believe in only one God, and his president told him it was the best sermon he had ever given. But we continued to talk. He had a lot of questions. I told him it was permissible to do that as a Gentile. He's allowed to be in a church and teach Judaism. And I saw that this man had a special neshama. He had a special soul. There was something very unique about him because Gentiles generally don't want to convert to Judaism. It's not natural. And I said to him, I believe that you are a Jew and you have a Jewish soul that's crying out. Do you have grandparents, great-grandparents from Spain or Portugal, perhaps, where so many Jewish people were forced to convert to Christianity? And he said, not exactly, but I have to tell you something, Rabbi. He said, my father passed away a number of years ago. He was no friend of the Jewish people. His feelings were nothing like mine. He had very, he had negative views about Jews, putting it mildly. But I always had a love for the Jewish people. And before he was going to die, I actually made a trip to the land of Israel for the very first time in my life. And when I had come back from the land of Israel, I brought with me a talis in a beautiful velvet bag. My father was already on his deathbed. And I came into the room. My father was laying there on his bed. And very proudly, I opened up this velvet pouch. And I took out a prayer shawl and I put it on his stomach. His face, he said, turned white like a sheet. And he pushed it off his body and threw it on the floor. His father passed away a few days later. After his father died, he and his brother began to clean the attic. His father's taking all his father's things. And they found a shoebox with letters in it. And they opened it and they began to look through the letters. And they found a very interesting letter from their father's father to their father. The father's father they had never met. And they opened up the letter and they began to read it. And it said this, how could you have done this to us? How could you have converted to Christianity and left your Jewish people? A lot of very interesting things happen, but there's a soul that's crying out for truth. We are now approaching the month of December and we are going to all be bombarded with Christmas and so on. A lot of suicides this time of the year, you know. I'm not sure why. I think it's probably the music, you know. I mean, no, I'm not kidding. What, I mean, what happened? No, it's not. It's, some of it's okay, but it's like, you know, it's like, oh, I want a bell. You get a bell. You got to get me shig So you have to sort of get ready for this time of the year. Now, as you know, that evangelical Christians will tell you that every aspect of Jesus' life was foretold in the... Old Testament. That's what Christians call the Old Testament. Not just the fact that he was born of a virgin. Oh no, that's not enough. But the very city that he was born in, Bethlehem, the Bible says that the Messiah had to be born in Bethlehem. It predicts it in the book of Micah. Now it's important for you to know that there are 27 books in the New Testament but only two of them mention that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. The book of Matthew and the book of Luke. No one else mentions it. They do it a little bit differently. Matthew has Jesus start out in Bethlehem, and then they eventually wind up in Nazareth, and Luke has everyone start out in Nazareth, and eventually wind up in Bethlehem. They come from different directions, so there's a little bit of a difference, and that's often referred to as the synoptic problem. But that's not really relevant. Now, the verse that, Christians will tell you that I can prove to you from your Bible that Jesus, that the Messiah, had to be born in Bethlehem, comes from the Jewish scriptures from the prophet Micah. This is the verse that Christians will tell you where you can prove that the Messiah had to be born in Bethlehem. Now, we're looking at it out of a new Jerusalem Bible, which is a Christian Bible, and you'll see it on the top, Micah 5. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, the least of the clans of Judah. From you will come for me a future ruler of Israel whose origins go back to the distant past to the days of old. Well, here very clearly, evangelicals will tell you, we have a prophecy that proves that the Messiah had to be born in Bethlehem. But that's where things get a little odd because this is a Christian Bible And this Christian Bible, the translator, also has an annotation on the bottom explaining what you're reading. And you see the arrow there pointing? He says something very interesting, because not all Christians agree with this. And that's important for you to understand. You remember we were looking at Isaiah 7.14, how the King James translates Alma as virgin, and I showed to you that the vast majority of modern Christian translators agree with the Jewish people. We've seen that in Daniel 9. In general, in general, most modern Christian translators and scholars agree with the Jewish people on translation and even sometimes on understanding. Let's take a look exactly in that paragraph where that black arrow is pointing, but in the middle of that line... This Christian is saying to us, Micah is thinking of the ancient origin of the dynasty of David. And of course, he brings down Ruth 11, and we'll find out the significance of that in a moment. And Samuel 17:12. the evangelists later interpreted this passage as a prophecy of Christ's birthplace. What does that mean? What he's saying here is that originally when this was written, this was written about King David and his birthplace, but later on the evangelists, the church fathers, the, the, the earliest church fathers, the writers of the New Testament, the very authors, reinterpreted this to now refer to Jesus. Now, what would make him say that? What would make this Christian say, because it's very clear from this verse, that this is really referring to King David's birthplace, rather than the birthplace of the Messiah. What would make him say that? If we read the first half of the verse, it reads, and you, Bethlehem Ephrata, you should have been the lowest of the clans of Judah, from you shall emerge for me to be a ruler over Israel. Does that sound like it might be saying that the Messiah is to be born in Bethlehem? Yes, it sure does. If all we have is the first half of that verse, it seems to be implying very strongly that the Messiah would certainly be someone from Bethlehem, and saying that the person would be born there is certainly not a very big stretch at all. It's that second half of the verse, part B. Now it's giving us the connection. And his origin is from old, from ancient days. Micah is telling us something very special here. If you want to know what the connection between the Messiah and Bethlehem is, the origin, and by the way, the word in Hebrew is, What does that word mean? We say it, that's our blessing that we make on bread, don't we? What blessing do we make when we eat bread? Same root. What does the word hamotzi mean? brings forth the source it comes forth from the ground hamotzi lechem minuaret who brings forth bread from the ground so what Micah is telling us here is and remember Micah lived a little bit after King David a couple of centuries and he is saying that you want to know where the Messiah who's going to be in the future both according to Christianity and Judaism from Micah the Messiah still is going to be in the future Micah, by the way, was a contemporary, for those of you who are not familiar with this this man of God, Micah was a contemporary of the much more famous prophet, Isaiah, and the prophet Hosea, and Amos, he was a contemporary of Hezekiah, now it gives you a sense, in secular chronology, he lived about the year 732 B.C.E. around that time. And he's saying to you, if you want to know what the origin of the Messiah, how does he connect to Bethlehem? It's from the past, from ancient days. By the way, King David, Bethlehem, you might have not been aware of it, but King David is called the Bethlehemite. First Samuel 17:58. And Saul said to him, whose son are you, young man? And David said, the son of your bondsman. Jesse the Bethlehemite. Well, now we know where that comes from. And I put together a timeline for you. You see on the bottom of the page, on the top names, you'll see those are the names we're directly interested in. And the names that are underneath the line, the episodes beneath the line, give you a sense of history and when they lived and when they preached. And he's looking to the future. And that's what the Bible has in view here. Looking at the Messiah and he's saying, you want to know where his origins are? From ancient days. But you know what's interesting is, it says in the beginning of that verse, it says that you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, although you are the least of, or the smallest of Judah. What does that mean, the smallest? Ask a question. Explain to me what that means, that Bethlehem is the smallest. Is Bethlehem the smallest city in Judah? No. But something about Bethlehem was tarnished. There was a problem with Bethlehem. But what does it mean that you are the smallest? And the word is soir. So, so me means it's almost a derogatory, it's the least. What does the Bible mean here? You are the least of the clans of Judah. Christians never ask that question. It all goes back to the great grandmother of King David. You see, King David had fuzzy ancestry. There was a woman, a great woman of God. Her name was Ruth. There was a whole book with her name. Ruth was a Moabite. And Ruth married the son of a woman named Naomi. Naomi and her husband, Elimelech, were Bethlehemites. But there was a famine in the land of Israel. And they had nothing to eat. Originally, their plan was to go to Moab and to be there just to eat temporarily. But the Bible says they decided to remain there, and that was the disaster. They had two sons, and the two sons intermarried. They married two Gentile women. Ruth was one, and Arpa was the other. Her two sons eventually died, and these now were two widows. And their mother-in-law was now going to return to the land of Israel alone. Without her husband who died earlier, and without her two sons who had already passed away. And she said to these two daughter-in-laws, Look, go back to your people. Arupah, one daughter-in-law, went over to her and just gave her a kiss and said, Goodbye. And she went on her way. But scripture tells us that Ruth was different. Ruth went over to her and held her and wouldn't let go and said, I'm going with you. And she said, Why are you coming with me? There's a famine in the land. Why are you coming? And she said, No, 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 no. Your people are my people. Where you will lie, I will lie. Where you will be, I will be. I'm coming back with you. And that was Ruth. Now, these two women didn't meet again in the Bible, but they sort of did because Arpa had a great-great-grandchild. And who was that man? Goliath. And Ruth has a great-grandchild. His name is David, so they will meet again. <laughs> but you see, Ruth, this person of towering character, There was something funny about her ancestry. And if you don't have the oral Torah, you have no way of understanding how she could have ever eventually converted to Judaism, which she did. How she could have become not only a grandmother and a great-grandmother of illustrious people, but of the greatest king of the Jewish people, King David himself, where all the righteous kings who followed David, they were just a throwback to King David. How is it? Because the Bible tells us that Ruth, who was a Moabite, no Moabite in Deuteronomy 23, verse 3, shall enter the assembly of the Lord. You can't convert to Judaism if you're a Moabite. Scripture tells us why, because when the Jewish people left Egypt, they passed through the land of the, of, of the Moabites, they passed through Moab, and instead of these people coming out and feeding them and giving them drink, they didn't, they just shuttered their houses closed. And therefore, God says, you're not converting to Judaism. Now, we don't know who they are today any longer because of Assyria. They homogenized the whole world, so we don't know who they are today. But we knew then that she was a Moabite. Now, just reading the Bible, if you're a Christian, you don't believe in the Oral Torah. Well, how could Ruth ever convert to Judaism? How could she become a Jew, let alone be the great-grandmother of King David? But if you have the Oral Torah, we know... That only the man can't convert to Judaism because only the man was expected to leave his house and come bring food and drink to the traveler. A woman would have never done that. Therefore, the woman can, the man cannot. Without an oral Torah, there is no way to understand this. But there was a, in Yiddish we say, there was a bletel. You see, Bethlehem had a problem. It was fuzzy because she came from a people who were not permitted to convert to the Jewish people. People, of course, were not comfortable with King David. King David, you're going to be the king. You, your grandmother, Moabite, people weren't comfortable with it. Bethlehem had a stain. You were least among the clans of Judah. This is all about David. This isn't about the Messiah. The Messiah is the byproduct of this verse. But the question we have to ask ourselves is, what does the church do with this problem? How does the church handle the problem of ancient days bring us back to king david well let's take it one at a time how does the church deal with part b let's try the first way what does matthew do with it does any of you want to guess what matthew would do with this verse he has the first part that's fine the second part of the disaster what do you think matthew would do with this verse exactly what would Matthew do with this verse? He simply drops the offensive part. Do any of you remember, just a little further on in the story in chapter 2, when Herod is looking to kill the little baby Jesus, because he's told by the wise men, by the astrologers, that the king of the Jews was born in Bethlehem. And what happens in, in Matthew chapter 2, verse 13? Joseph has a dream, and in the dream an angel comes to him and says, Joseph! Quickly, take Mary, your wife, and Jesus, and go to Egypt, and be thou there until the death of Herod. Let's turn the page. And when they were departed, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, and take the young child, and his mother, and flee into Egypt, and be thou there until I bring thee word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed into Egypt, and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which is spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying... Now, this is the quote from the Jewish scriptures that's in bold italics. Out of Egypt have I called my son. So, Matthew is telling us, this isn't an arbitrary event that little Jesus has to... It's not just an arbitrary event that the little Messiah has to be brought to Egypt... Oh, no, that's fulfillment. Indeed, the Hebrew prophets, the Jewish scriptures foretold that the Messiah himself as a child was to go to Egypt. Now, if you had a Christian study Bible, it would tell you that those words, Out of Egypt have I called my son, is a quote from, indeed, the Jewish scriptures, the book of Hosea, chapter 11, verse 1. But when we go back to Hosea 11, verse 1, we find that for some reason, Matthew doesn't quote the whole verse. He only quotes half the verse. You see, what the verse actually says is, When Israel was a child, then I loved him and called my son out of Egypt. So what you do is you simply drop the first half of the verse, because that's offensive. The first half of the verse clearly reveals that this is referring to the nation of Israel. Drop it, because it's offensive and just quote the second half. And that's exactly what Matthew does here, but reversed. Look at the upper left-hand corner. We have Matthew chapter 2, verse 6. He does the identical thing. He only quotes part A of the verse, and he simply drops the offensive part B that would draw you to the back, to the origin of the Messiah. And that origin is behind Micah. It's King David himself therefore knew little about what he was reading. I'll just show you something interesting. Matthew was very insulted by by Micah 5. Because Micah 5 says, You are the least, you Bethlehem, you're the least significant of all the clans in Judah, of all the little communities in Judah. Matthew doesn't like that. You're the least. The Messiah is to be born there. I'm having the Messiah born there. We can't have it say you are the least of the clans of Judah. That's not going to fly. We want you to be the most prominent, the most significant. Certainly, we can't have it say, you are the least. He had no understanding of what it meant that it was referring to Ruth. So what does he do? Take a look. You see the word not italicized in bold? He said, you are not the least among the rulers of Judah. How do you change our Bible when you don't even understand what you're reading? Luke was much more careful. Luke wouldn't use a verse like this. Luke, of course, insists that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. But the only connection he made was the correct connection. And that he said, look, Bethlehem is the city of David. It is the city of David. Take a look at Luke chapter 2, verse 4 and 11. Joseph also went from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judah to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Because he was of the house and lineage of David. But there was born to you this day in the city of David a Savior. So Luke has it right. Luke simply connects Bethlehem, known as the city of David. He simply connects to the city of David. He doesn't touch that stuff. And we find that very often in the New Testament, where Matthew misunderstands, and Luke will be much more careful. And just as an example, so that you understand what I mean by this, as an example, we have Zechariah, very late, one of the last of the Jewish prophets. And in the book of Zechariah, it tells us in chapter 9, verse 9, that the Messiah, he's going to be coming into Jerusalem, lowly, on a donkey, the foal of an ass. How many animals is a donkey, the foal of an ass? It's one animal. The fall of an ass is a description of what kind of donkey it is. But if your knowledge of Hebrew is limited, you think it's two animals. And that's where Matthew blew it. If you take a look in the center, on the bottom of the page, you see there's Zechariah 9.9? Be exceedingly happy, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king shall come to you. He is just and victorious. Humble, riding a donkey, the fall of an ass. Matthew, of course, misunderstands the Hebrew, and he thinks he's coming in on two animals. It's almost like a circus act. And Matthew has Jesus coming in on two animals. How he pulled it off, I have no idea. Then Jesus sent two disciples, saying, look at the left side, Matthew 21, verse 1 through 7. Then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied in a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them. And immediately he will send them. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. They brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them, and set him on them. You need to do some good stretching to do that. You know, you could wind up in the hospital you do that. The writers of the Gospels, they weren't starting with an event and then going to the, to the Bible. They simply looked at the Jewish scriptures and said, well, we need to create a story around it. So Matthew creates a story with two animals. Luke was more careful. He was the Gentile. He knew what he didn't know. And therefore checked it out and knew that Jesus coming in, we have to have Jesus coming on one animal. Look at the right side. And he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village opposite you, in which as you enter you will find a cult tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. It. And finally it says, and, and then he brought it to Jesus and they threw the garments on the cult and put Jesus on it. Which is it? It or them? It depends. That's called the synoptic problem. They're starting with the Bible. They're looking back into the Jewish scriptures and saying, okay, this looks like Messianic. Let's have Jesus do it. That's where they're beginning. They're not beginning with a historical event. They're starting with the Jewish scriptures. Let's create an event around it. Matthew creates the event as he understands it because he has a very limited Jewish education. So therefore, he has not coming in on two animals. Luke knew enough to ask. and Therefore, he knew there was only one animal. This is the pattern that we find in the New Testament. But there's another question here. What did the rest of the Christians do? More importantly, what did the Christian translators do with Micah 5? Those Christian translators that are insisting that the proof of the birth in Bethlehem is found in Micah, and there's no way around this, what do you do with Micah 5? You can't do your Bible and just leave out half the verse, although NIV comes close to doing things like that. But what do you have to do here? Anyone know? I'm sorry? No problem. You change the word ancient days to eternity, and you've got your Trinity theology. Turn the page, if you would. You'll see seven hexagons, and what I've done for you is I've given you seven mainstream, but these are very conservative, evangelical translations, and let's just look at the King James Version and see what they do with it but thou Bethlehem Ephrata, though you be little among the thousands of Judah yet out of thee shall come he come forth unto me that is to be a ruler in Israel and here's part B whose going forth have been from old from everlasting well there you got it Homo usio, Jesus is of course co-eternal co-redeemer with the father and therefore his origins go back to eternity bang it's all taken care of you and all these seven translators all participate in this by the way how do you know who's telling the truth Maybe it does say eternity. Maybe the rabbis changed it. How could you be sure? What would we do now? You guys who have been here through a lot of lectures, we have a question about a verse. How do we tell who's telling the truth? What technique do we use? Yes. Go back to the Jewish Bible and you look at the consistency of the wording. Be more specific. To find this word used in You're delicious. What we do is we simply say, okay, we have these words, me olam. What does it mean? Does it mean eternity, as the King James says? Does it mean from days of old, ancient days, as the Jerusalem Bible says? Which one is it? All we do is we see where these two words appear in all the other places in the Bible. There are only five of them. Take a guess how the King James translates those two words in all other five places. From ancient days. Look at the top of your page. Just as an example, let's a look at Amos chapter 9, verse 11. This is the same King James. In that day, this is messianic, ladies and gentlemen. In that day, I will raise up the tabernacle of David that is fallen. That's the rebuilding of the final temple that will finally be here in the messianic age. And close up the breaches thereof, and I will raise up its rooms, and I will build it as in days of old, just like it was in the temple. Does that mean from eternity there was no temple before the world was created? It means that at the end of days, ladies and gentlemen, hopefully it will be soon in our days, but when the Messiah will come, there will be an eternal, an everlasting temple, Ezekiel 43, verse 7, that will stand where the dome of the rock and is standing. It will be a temple, and it will be a glorious one. And what will it be like, Amos tells us, like the days of old. Now tell me, King James, why is it that in Amos chapter nine verse eleven. It means ancient days, very clearly referring to temple times. But somehow in Micah five, it suddenly means eternity. By the way, I, it's always important for me to tell you. Then most Christian translators are honest here. I never want to personify this as that all Christians participate in this. They don't. Most. Christians correctly translated. And what I've done for you on the very next page is I've actually given you uh, 14 Christian translators that do translate this correctly. And ladies and gentlemen, there's a big surprise in one of these translators. Who's the big surprise to be on this page? The NIV. That's a doozy. (laughs) The NIV, maybe whoever was the translator then was like on maternity leave. They had like a temp there at that moment when they were doing Micro 5. And the NIV, they decided, I don't know, maybe they, I don't know what. But for some reason, the NIV says there from ancient days, the NIV translates that correctly. Don't ask me. I have no idea. What's very funny is sort of the, the NIV can't hold itself back. You know, so it's very interesting when it says there from ancient days. There's a little footnote there. They can't They can't hold themselves back. There's a little letter Q there, and on the side of the page, what do you think it says? Q? What do you think it says in the footnote? Everless. From E et- to from eternity. Like you can't just go straight and sober, right? You gotta, you gotta, you know, somehow. How did they get from Judaism to that? Far, I mean, you watch like the midnight mass, you know, and you. Where is the Judaism there? How did we get that far? And the answer is, ladies and gentlemen, that when you change one thing in a perfect system, ultimately you're going to have to change everything. Think about those of you who are scientists, those of you who have even a, a perfunctory knowledge of physics. If we change just one law of thermodynamics, conservation, would a space shuttle take off the ground? Would you be able to blow your nose? The answer is no. You have a perfect system, the biblical faith of Judaism, well, all you have to do is if you want to bring Jesus into it and suddenly say this perfect system needs something else, needs Jesus, then you have systems theory. So those of you who are social workers will know what those words mean. That system that you bring in will impinge on every other element. Why do I need Jesus? For I have a Torah that tells me how to, be, how to live my life with perfection with God. Oh, but you see, the Torah is not enough because you can't keep the Torah. It's too difficult. It's too hard. To watch the chain. Watch the chain. You, what do you mean I came to you, Torah? Torah says you can't. No, no one could do because no one's perfect. Okay, if you can't keep it, therefore only Jesus could fulfill it for you. But what do you mean Jesus can fulfill it for you? I have sacrifice. I have animal sacrifices. Oh, no, but the animal sacrifices really never worked. Hebrews 10, because if animal sacrifices really always worked, there was nothing wrong with it, why not just keep animal sacrifices? Why do you need the, you need the cross at Calvary? So therefore you have to say that sacrifices really never worked. And there's Hebrews 10, verse 4 and 5. How could the blood of bulls and goats really atone for sin? But wait one second. If you say, watch what happens now. If you say that you can keep the commandments because it's too hard and we're too imperfect, then how could someone choose Jesus? Oh, then you need predestination. What is predestination about? Before the foundations of the earth were put into place, God chose who was going to be saved and who was not going to be saved. Wait, you're going to have people chosen for salvation. What happens to all the other people? Double predestination. What happens? Then you have those who are predestined for eternal hell. Change one thing and everything has to change around the circle. I hope you understand a little bit more about what I'm here for. I'm not here to say this is what's wrong with any religion. I'm here to say let's come back to the source. Let's come back to the Jewish scriptures because God does love you. And the Torah is finer than silver and gold and sweeter than the fat of rams. Thank you very, very much for having me tonight. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Hi. Thank you. Yeah. I was always looking at Babel and this idea of the chariot and follow him, and he wouldn't And that's been, that's the torment, that's the job. something happened. I mean, whether it was the one to do what he had But something happened to our people. Seventy-eight years, seven to seven and a half, he was the present day. And that doesn't sound like our God. So we That's a very good question. Let me say, first, let me explain his question. His question is look, we, the Jews, have been in exile 2,000 years of waiting. By the way, all the church fathers, Luther, this was Luther's biggest point. By the way, as some, the prophet, therefore, all these alleged prophets said the Jews would never return to the land of Israel to have autonomy again you see that God is doing the blessing because we have returned So that's over. and we didn't turn to Jesus to return so something obviously happened it has nothing to do with Christianity but the question is what did we do so terrible that we haven't returned 2,000 years what's so terrible? you understand? by the way it's so obvious as soon as Jews start believing in Jesus we're exiled do you understand how serious a sin that is to convert to Christianity? What did I do with you? You said the reason is because we rejected Jesus. The reason obviously is because we accepted Jesus. Those Jews who became Christians and then Muslims and so on, they held it back. That's an oversimplistic answer. The truth is that the Bible tells us that this would be the case. That means the question really isn't against Judaism, the question really is against Christianity and I'll explain to you what I mean. The prophets foretold that it would be a very long exile prophet said that before any Christianity existed. In Hosea chapter 3 verse 4 it says the Jews would remain for many days without a king, prince, um, aphod, uh, sacrifice and so on. So there's no question against Judaism of why the Jews have had a very long exile. We've re- we've the return we see now Jews are back in the land of Israel. We hope this is the beginning of something very special. But the question is not against Judaism. The prophet said it would be a long exile. The real question is against Christianity. Why did it taking Jesus so long to come back? You see, the prophets foretold it would be a long time, and it worked out that way, that's fine. But Jesus says, I am coming back quickly at the end of Revelations 22. As a matter of fact, in Mark chapter 9, chapter 13 it says, Verily I say unto you, there are many in this generation who will not taste of death until the kingdom comes. They all died. You see what I'm saying? He said, another place says, Verily I'm saying to you, this generation shall not pass till the kingdom comes. It didn't happen. And that's why the early church thought that the, Jesus' return was imminent. If Jesus says, I'm, and don't tell me a day to a, a man is a thousand years. That's, he was speaking in human terms. Quickly means quickly. Imminently. So the question is, in Judaism we expected a long exile. And our sages tell us that. Every day throughout the world, throughout the creation, represented a thousand years, and we are now Friday afternoon. You've seen the first thousand years of Sunday. Monday, Tuesday, it's Friday afternoon, Shabbos is coming, Do you understand? But the question isn't against Judaism, because this was anticipated. Our literature describes this, this is the days of the Messiah, but in the first 2,000, the first 3,000, the first 4,000 was not the times of the Messiah. Now the Messiah can come. This is not an issue for Judaism. And I'm going to say something to you. The truth is that Jews have sinned throughout history. I'm not, I can't whitewash this to you. It's not true. Most. Jews have worshipped idolatry throughout our history. I mean, if you look at the time of Elijah, soon after King David, right? And Elijah turns to God and he says to God, all the Jews are worshipping Baal. And God says two things. First of all, you're fired. Second of all, there are 7,000 that are still righteous. And Elisha takes over. I just put in the fire part. So he says, but essentially what happens is Elisha takes over. By the way, that's why Elijah has to come to every Seder and to every Briss. Elijah thought the game was up. He thought the Jewish people were over. He said, all the Jews are worshipping idols. And God said, no, there are just 7,000 that are still righteous, that are still dedicated to me, that have not worshipped idolatry. 7,000 out of a nation that was probably 2-3 million people. It doesn't take a big calculator to figure out that we were never a large number that, were, that would remain faithful. It was always a small remnant. We see, that even in, we see that even in the spies. Twelve spies go, ten come back in apostasy, in rebellion. That's the way the Jews always were. And that, that apostasy against what? Read Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, if you can. Cause they're very painful to read. But if you read there, what will cause the Jewish people to be in an exile? So it means, let's see what God says. Does he say because you're not going to believe in Jesus? Does he say because you're not going to believe in the Messiah? No. It says two things. Number one, you're going to take polytheism over monotheism. As a matter of fact, it says, Deuteronomy 28, that you're going to worship gods of wood and stone not gold and silver isn't that odd suddenly when the jews go into their final exile they're not going to be worshiping gold and silver the way they did in the past but suddenly they're going to worship things that actually have very little value wood and stone i say just tell us that the wood represents the cross and the stone is the Kaaba. so what will keep a jew away from a return and a restoration that means let's not be and i'm not saying you are but don't let's not be emotional about this we have to say, what does Scripture say clearly? The two things that will keep Jews out of the land is two things. Number one, a polytheism, which is spiritual adultery, meaning not believing in one God, but believing in many gods. Secondly, is not keeping the mitzvot, not keeping the commandments. Take a look around you. Who are those Jews who keep the mitzvot today? Let's be honest with each other. These are not Jews who believe in Christianity. I met, I was in Grand Rapids, I met a messianic Rabbi there, I'm not going to mention his name, okay? He comes in there, he says he keeps the law. I'm very impressed. But he walked into my hotel with our bags, with zetsing, with things, he packed whole packages there with Bibles. And I said, you keep the, it says in the Bible, you're not allowed to carry on Shabbos. He said, I didn't know that. He said, read Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 19 and 20. So you think that he found it out, he would say, well, can I leave this? No! He said, when he left, he walked out with all the bundles of things, he didn't care. He didn't care. Only one nation keeps the Torah, and that's the righteous remnant of Israel. Never was anyone else. And that's the only nation that was preserved. Watch with me. You want to see a covenant? I'll show you a covenant for you. The covenant is conditional. National Israel cannot disappear. It's interesting, the one commandment the Jews invented was continuity. See, it's a big mitzvah. Continuity, we have to make sure Jews don't disappear. God never gave us the commandment to make sure the Jews continue. That's God's problem, not mine. So that's His promise, not mine. It's His IOU, not, not mine. National Israel cannot disappear. It's impossible. The reason why Arachim exists. Is because they don't want you to give up your seat on the bus. Not that they're worried that the Jews are going to disappear. It can't happen. We'll go on with without you, without me. It doesn't. Me without what they without Jonathan does. No person. That is unchangeable. But here's the catch. Deuteronomy seven verse seven and nine says. Excuse me. Deuteronomy seven verse nine and twelve says that the covenant is conditional on two things. That means, those who remain in the national Israel, two things. By the way, you should know, during the Roman Empire, during the first century, excuse me, nine percent of the world's population was Jewish. Just remember that. Forty-four million people, four million are Jews. If we had maintained that nine percent of the cut of the pie, we would be about six hundred million Jews today. We're not. We're twelve million. The vast bulk has opted out. They became Christians and Muslims and communists. They're gone. I would ask you today, let's be honest, there are Jews here representing every type of denomination, every kind of belief. Let's be honest. There are a lot of differences between us here tonight, aren't there? But I want to focus on the similarities for a moment. The reality is if I go back 100 years with any Jew in this room, I'm going to find a Torah observant Jew. Not only that, usually, oh, my great-grandfather, he was a rabbi. Not only a chief rabbi, somewhere. everybody's grandfather's a rabbi. Why? Because if they were just a horse puller, they're not here today. He said only the, the rabbi's grandchildren made it. The covenant could only go through those Jews who love God and keep the Torah. Those who deviated from the message are gone. They didn't stop having children. They simply ceased to be a part of the nation of Israel. And by the way, they wanted to be a part of the Jewish people. It's not that Jews, that only certain kind of Jews, only Torah-observant Jews are proud of their national identity. All Jews are equally. The problem is they don't have a covenant. Those who remain faithful have the covenant. That's why there's only been one line. Most Jews are not here today because they're not part of it. We'd like to think they were they're not. Here's the question. If Christianity is the true religion, and I'm being vulgar here. I mean, let's just put it all on the table. Most of the people i afraid of a gone anyway. Let's talk about it.
1: <laughs> let's
0: be honest. If Christianity is the true religion, then why isn't it, isn't it odd that the only Jews that God protected and kept a part of the covenant are those Jews who rejected Christianity and embraced Judaism? Think about it there were many Jews back then who believed in Jesus there was a whole group called the Nazarenes that remained for 2-3 centuries Hebrew Christians I'll go further with you I will let me just see it, because I need people to focus on it as a matter of fact, I was I'm about to say what you were saying in other words, as a matter of fact, I'll even concede that a man like Peter James, maybe they walked to every day and kept kosher, it's possible most Christians will say they did right? Jerusalem church Jews, very fraught right? The only thing is they went after a false prophet. They're gone. Where are Peter's grandchildren today? They're not here any longer as Jews. The man was a married man. Where are his grandchildren? They don't exist today. You see, the one thing that Jews who converted to Christianity throughout the centuries have in common is that they're children, their descendants are no longer here as Jews. The same thing that happened to their grandchildren happened to Jews who became Muslims, Jew, Jews who became atheists, Hindus and so on. You can't opt out of the message. You can, but if you do, there's no reason for you to be part of an eternal nation. The function of being a part of an eternal nation is that you have an eternal message to the world that you have to bring. If you have to bring an eternal message, you have to be an eternal nation. If you don't want to be a part of that message, there's no need for you to be part of an eternal nation. So yes, there are many Jews here that don't know it. They're today, they're the Italians, who knows what they are? But they're not Jews anymore because they're gone. Why is it? There are many groups that rejected the Oral Torah. Many groups. Big groups. Sadducees, Karaites. They're gone. They were once mighty, we're the Sadducees. Anyone went to Hebrew school here? You had a Sadducee in your class? No, it didn't exist. They weren't, ah, they were once very big knockers They're not anymore, they're gone. They want to read. Not only didn't they, not only aren't they big, you don't even read, they didn't write a thing. You want to know about the Sadducees, you have to write what, what the Christians and Jews wrote about them. No one knows a thing, and Romans wrote about them, Josephus wrote about them. The point is they're gone today. Why, they were once very powerful, but they don't have the covenant. And I say this to you, I know there's a lot at stake here, there are many ways of demonstrating the truth and beauty of the Jewish faith. One of them is the covenant. Ask yourself honestly this question. If Christianity is the true expression of Judaism, that is God's will, why is it that although hundreds and thousands of millions of Jews throughout the ages have become Christians? Let's not be, let's not be silly. The one thing they all have in common is that their grandchildren are no longer here as Jews. They're gone. The same thing happened to Jews who became everything else. Uh, You know, it it, it should be said, I'm going to say something to the Jews who became Christians in this room. It's an iron, uh, you know, Jews who become Christians today often are very proud of their Jewishness. They are. They're not ashamed. There are some that are, but many of them are very proud. I'm Jewish. I'm very proud of this. Okay? we will tell you. But isn't it odd that your whole whole connection to your Jewishness is umbilically connected to a rejection of Jesus? Had your great-great-great-grandmother accepted Christianity, you wouldn't be here identifying as a Jew. So your whole source of pride of being a Jew is umbilically connected to rejection of Christianity. Think about that. Any other questions? Yes, sir. Oh. Well, I've had a Christian say to me that uh, Jesus had to be the Messiah because the Jews can't have one. Because it says that our Messiah must be from the line of David. And we don't have any records anymore. They were all destroyed when the temple was destroyed. So we don't know that many and so we cannot have Messiah so it has to be someone from 2,000 years ago. What's your answer to that? It's funny because I got a tag on my Y chromosome. What do you say? I mean, say it again. I'll explain. I'm a Kohane. Yeah. <laughs> right. We see that our Messiah is intact and our sages knew nothing about a test tube. So how you You too? we're cousins. Listen, this is the question. I'm going to phrase the question. I was in San Antonio last night, I lectured there, and got the same exact question, this time it was from a Christian. The question is, look, everybody knows that in the Second Temple was destroyed. All the genealogical records were kept there, and they were all destroyed, when the Second Temple destroyed. We have no idea today who is from what tribe, and we don't know anything. The reason I said my tag on my Y chromosome of course, as we know, that means that what we just found is because males have the Y chromosome, so therefore the Missourians, the Jewish people claim that we come from Aaron. I come from Aaron. I have, by the way, a genealogical chart at home. It's a whole table. And there are 127 generations between Aaron and myself, and I know every single man between us. The nation of Israel, our families are very holy. We know, everybody knows whose family, where, what. We have problems just in the last few generations. This argument has no head and it has no tail. I don't mean that in a condescending way, but sometimes I'm asked the question, I don't even know where to begin. Where does it say anywhere that genealogical records were kept in the temple? Doesn't exist anywhere, nowhere never happened. Where did the temple house, genealogical records? It's something based on here. You need to, I need to train you how to think here. You need to think and ask the question, how do you know this? And what, and when he says, I don't know, or somebody told me, ask him, do you believe everything you hear? Now don't say, say it in a condescending way, because I'm sure the man's sincere, or whatever. She's, I'm sure she, she meant it. I don't mean this in a way, but say to them, check it out. There's a lot at stake here, you know? You know, if Jesus is the Messiah, it's who Christianity says that he is, so we have to worship him. But, you know, and if you don't, you're going to hell. Right? But if he's not who Christianity says he is, and you worship him as if he is, you're going roughly to the same place. Right? There's a lot... There is. Everything's at stake. I mean, honestly, it's, we have to be very careful here. Where did you get a stake is, a, is so problematic. The situation for the Jewish people in the year 70 was not, God forbid, in terms of what happened. But in terms of the population, was very similar to the way it is today. All the Jews lived in Israel during the year 70? No. When the Jewish people went into exile, the Babylonian exile... The Jews were spread out. Very few came back with Ezra. The vast bulk of the Jewish people were in Babylon. They were spread in the Roman Empire. They weren't in Israel. Like today, there was a, a substantial minority of Jews in Israel. The vast bulk of the Jews, they were all over. They were in, in Babylon. They were studying in Nehardor, Pompadisa, great places. That's where they were. So, what do you think? Everyone suddenly, the second temple destroyed, everyone had amnesia. No one knew who their father was. The absurdity is we had an exile for over a millennia, a thousand years we had a person who was the head of the exile. He was the leader, and we knew exactly who he was from. Every family knew exactly what tribe they were from. This was known to the Jewish people. Every family in Europe, your families, back in Eastern Europe, in Russia, in Afghanistan. What do you think? They were just families? Every family was holy. They didn't sleep around, run around. Every family was well known. Speak to people who survived the Holocaust. Jewish people are a holy nation. Every family was well-known. And there are computers in, the, in Israel and in the United States. If you can get yourself back maybe five generations, they could take you right back to Adam. Every one of you. Amongst the nations of the world, they have no idea. How would the Jewish uh, community explain uh, the essential laws of sin sacrifice is blood sacrifice? Ken, how would the... Sorry. Sorry. About, uh, a man-made institution, uh, since it wasn't what would you call a man made institution? Because I want uh, to answer your question fully. Okay, so good question. You know, of course. I'm pretty good here tonight, aren't I? Um, I'm, I'm not going to repeat your question. What did you ask? You ask him. He asked the question. The question is, we know in the Bible that there was a sin sacrifice. You know what that sin sacrifice is called? A korbon chatos, right? And you'll find, take my word for it, okay. And you'll find the korbon chatos in Leviticus chapter, anyone? Four. Sin sacrifice, you brought a sacrifice for sin. Now the question is Jew. You're a Jew, Jack? Where's your blood, Jack? I mean, listen to me, Jews. and Listen carefully. You can go to your synagogues and wax forth with your prayers and noble words. And they're beautiful words that are said in the synagogue. Am I right? They're mostly from the Bible. Am I right? But where's your blood? Where is that innocent blood? What's going to cover your sins? Everybody sins. The Bible says in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 20, that there isn't a man, a good man under the sun, that does that which is just, yet sinneth not. Everybody sins. Ladies and gentlemen, you all have sinned in your life. Where is your atonement? Where is your blood sacrifice? Where is your high priest sprinkling the blood on the altar? Isn't it obvious that Judaism, although a wonderful religion is defective in its most modern expression, it lacks that essential quality of the shedding of blood? And don't you think God has, don't you think God must have provided something in its stead? And what could that be? Well, I'll tell you what that is. That could only be Yeshua, Jesus. God so loved the world that he gave that only be God i would be a dangerous missionary. So, right? Did I, did I ask that question fairly? Is that basically what you would ask? Okay. Let me ask you a question, by the way. Did a sin sacrifice... Is that the only method in the Bible for atonement? Is a blood sacrifice the only method for atonement in the Bible? We want to talk about the Bible now, not about Talmud. Just the Bible, clear? Yes. Okay. The answer is no. That's not true. Actually, there are three methods of atonement outlined in the Bible. One of them, you're right, is the blood sacrifice, this, the carbon chatos. But there's another form of atonement. Anyone? Well, fasting, not really, but prayerful repentance, and then a subsect the subsection of that is fasting. Also, giving charity. Those three methods of atonement are clearly articulated in the Bible. By the way, are they all equal? Is maybe blood is more important than repentance. Maybe repentance is more important than sacrificing. Does anyone know? Does a sacrifice atone, by the way, for every kind of sin? I'll ask you. No, it doesn't. actually only atones for one type of sin. Does anyone know? and that's how, it's one of the ways we're going to find out it's the weakest form of atonement what kind of sin that is atoned for? only sins that are done unintentionally, very good, do you know that if you do a sin intentionally there is no sacrifice for it by the way, one other point, and you need to know this this is not the first religion, Christianity, that claim that blood is everything if you don't have blood, you're lost this was an old story with the Jews. You open up the book of Judges, you will find the prophets screaming to the Jews, don't get involved in blood, it's not a big deal. King David himself, who knew quite well you can get an atonement without the shedding of blood, hence 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13, he said, he warned the Jews, People are going to say to you, you need blood for sin. And I want you to know, God doesn't even want to have those sacrifices. They're not that important. Listen to my words. He says, are sacrifices and burnt offerings God does not desire, but my ears you have opened for me. Psalm 40, verse 7 in the Christian Bible, verse 6. Burnt offerings and sin offerings you have not required. Do you think the church likes those words? It's a disaster, ladies and gentlemen. Because the church says that you need blood and there's nothing else besides blood. Hebrews 9.22 misquotes Leviticus 17.11 and says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no atonement and it's a lie. Do you know what the Bible, what the Christian Bible does with those words? Sacrifices and offerings you did not desire, but my ears you have opened for me? You have an NIV? Well... I'll save you time. If you look it up in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5 and 6, you won't do it fast enough. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5 and 6, it quotes Psalm 40, verse 6, but it destroys it. It reads like this Sacrifices and offerings you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me, burnt offerings and sin offerings you have not required. How do you change the Word of God? How do you play with my Bible? How do you distort and change? And if you're going to play with the Word of God, you know what I'm going to do when I'm going to consider this religion? I'll leave skid marks. You can't play with the Word of God. One more point, and I need you all to really come really close now. Listen carefully. The prophet Hosea. Now, why is Hosea so important? Hosea is so important in this subject, because Hosea was a contemporary of Isaiah. Hosea lived about 2700 years ago, a little bit more actually. Hosea lived when there was a temple. It was flourishing, it was burning, it was happening, it was spritzing, everything was going. And he said something very interesting, he said that one day you're not going to have sacrifices. Listen carefully. Write this down. If you write anything down tonight, this you don't want to miss. Hosea chapter 3, verse 4 and 5. I want to say that again. Hosea chapter 3, verse 4 and 5. The prophet Hosea is going to describe uh, irrationally. Remember those words, irrationally. When you think of prof- prophecy, think of irrationality. It doesn't make sense. When he wrote it was absurd. He says, he describes the last segment of Jewish history before the coming of the Messiah. And that's what we are, ladies and gentlemen, today. And he says, the children of Israel shall remain for many days without a king. You don't have a king. Without a sacrifice. We don't have a sacrifice. Without a prince. No prince. Without an aphod, no high priest. You know how long? Until the end of days. Until the messianic age. Then we will have David God's servant. Listen carefully. So he tells us, this is remarkable, the last segment of Jewish history is not gonna have anything you see around you, no sacrifice, but wait. I'm being told by Moshe Rosen that I need blood. It says it openly in the Book Yeshua. What do I do, Hosea, what do I do instead? You say you can't use anything instead, but the Bible says differently. Write this down, Hosea chapter 14, verse 2 and 3. Please look it up in that NIV. Hosea 14, you'll see why in a moment. Hosea 14, Hosea 14, verse 2 and 3. Hosea knows, he just finished telling you, my delicious brothers and sisters, listen to me, if you're not going to have blood, what do I use instead? And he says these words, Israel, Take with you words, for you have stumbled in your iniquity. Say you shall forgive our transgressions, and let us render for bulls the offering of our lips. What does bulls mean? What is lips? What's the offering of our lips? Bingo. He says, when you don't have a sacrifice, you pray. And that's why when King Solomon was inaugurating the first temple in 1 Kings chapter 8, he says there, one day, my brothers and sisters, listen, kinderlech, you're not going to have this temple. You're going to be going into exile. You're not going to have Jerusalem. You're going to be far away. And you know what he says? You're going to pray, face this place, this city. That's why Jews face east when we pray. Confess your sins, this is 46 through 50. Chapter 8, 46 through 50. Confess your sins. God will hear your prayers in heaven and forgive you for all your transgressions. Why doesn't he say when you go into exile, there'll be a Messiah, his name is Jesus. He's going to die on Calvary and you're going to believe in him and you're going to be saved. But watch, watch now. This is the kicker. Do you think the church likes those words, let us surrender for bulls, the offering of our lips? No. It's a disaster. Because that means you don't need blood, you can pray instead of having a sacrifice. Do you know what this Bible, this is a thank you for bringing it tonight, is an NIV Bible. You know what this NIV Bible does with those words? It changes them. You can't leave it there. So in an NIV, chapter 14, verse 3, it reads like this. Maybe you should do it for me, Jack. Verse 2, carefully. Listen carefully what they do with it. <coughs> Take words with you in the church of the Lord. Thank you, Him. Forgive all our sins and receive us in. That means the fruit of our lips. What did you say, Jack? The fruit of our lips. Okay. Did you hear what they did? It says, "Let us render for bulls the offering of our lips." This any NIV Bible, which is really a disaster. This is a this is one this is a Christian typhoon. This is in the 1970s. It's a fundamental Christian Bible. Changed it because they don't want you to see that it says, let us render for bulls the offering of our lips. By the way, a King James says it correctly. It says it there, let us render for bulls the offering of our lips. The New American Standard, correctly. The NIV changes it. How dare they play with my Bible? Good question. Thank you. Any, any other questions you have? Yes. You didn't ask question? If the Jewish believes in Jesus, are they still considered Jewish? You didn't ask me, now you ask me, I'll tell you. Sorry, is, now there are two issues here. Are they still a Jew, or is what they believe Jewish? If a Jew says, I don't believe in God, it happens. Are they still a Jew? Yes. So, so again, if a Jew says, I believe in Jesus, or I believe in Hare Krishna, are they still Jewish? Yes. Are they a Jew? Yes. Meaning they come, if I may, they come from a Jewish uterus. And I'm being, you know, in a sense very practical here, because you should not say they come from a Jewish mother. But is what they believe Jewish? No. Are they held responsible as Jews to repent? Yes. Could they be buried in a Jewish cemetery? No. They're given Aliyah? No. They lose the rights of being a Jew, as not just if they believe in Jesus, but they believe in anything, and Reverend Moon makes no difference. But they are Jews. A Jew Jew cannot opt out. A Jew is a Jew. By the way, the word religion doesn't even appear in the Bible. The Jewish people are a nation. A unique nation. So therefore, they are a Jew. But as a Jew, they are required to repent. They are required to come back. But the promise is that God says, if you will come back to me, I will come to you. The promises to a Jew who converted to Christianity, that it's not God's arm that's too short to save you. I promise you that. And it's not his ear that's too small to hear you. It's your sins that separate you. And I'm being quite... I'm, first, of all, I'm leaving San Antonio in a few hours. I could say anything. <laughs> so, who cares? It's your problem once I leave. You, have to deal with, you can deal with the fuller, not me. <laughs>